You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Rising in Love, Motivana as Magnificent Drama by Shoshana Milgram. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. But for us, it's not the afternoon. It's not the middle of the day. It's the middle of the night. It's the middle of the play. And it's time to see and speak the truth. Because for right now, I want to take us back to the middle of Act Two. And I know many of you were with me in this room last night when we saw the play, but I'll tell you what was going on. Okay, this is the moment when the universe changed for Giovanna Colonna, the wife of the commander of the city of Pisa, and Gianello Principali, the general of the Florentine army besieging the city. I wish I were watching it again but at least we'll, we'll remember it in our minds because it's important to see and savor the moment when they see and speak the truth. It's important in the play for the survival of an entire city that hangs between life and death. It's important for the souls of the man and woman in that tent on the outskirts of Pisa. It's important for the writer, Maurice Metterlink, who brought them together. And this play, unlike some of Metterlink's other plays, which were set in the realms of fantasy and fairy tales and dreams. This one was set in Renaissance Italy, a very real place and a very interesting place. This afternoon, after we visit the scene, I'll tell you how he came to write the play and how it was performed or not performed on the world stages. And finally, because it was also important to Ayn Rand, I'll look at the impact of Monovana on Ayn Rand, the writer who has brought us together. But first, let's begin in the middle. What's happening in Act Two? Gianello Principali, who's loved Giovanna since the time when the two of them were children in Venice, has devised a deal. He's offered food for her besieged city in return for a single night alone with her. She is to arrive at his tent naked beneath her cloak. It is an offer she does not refuse, and it's entirely up to her, and she agrees to do that. Now, he's arranged this encounter in order to see her again and then see what happens. And when he does see her, he tells her some of his purpose. And I'm quoting, Is it possible that I could make you know before you leave tonight what you have been to me and all you will be to the end of my days? He wanted her to know that he's always loved her. He wanted her to look at him and to see everything he's felt. He wanted her to learn something. But when he sees her, he himself learns something about his own emotions. He learns that his feeling is deeper than he had known. And he says, my whole life flows through me as I say your name to you. I thought I knew before what you meant to me, but with you here alive in front of me, I see that every hour of every day you've been with me. It's his whole life. He tells her, tonight you blossom into life more beautiful than I dreamed. What you really are outshines even the memory I treasured. So he learns something about himself and her and about his feeling for her. Now he initially wanted to see her because he's loved her since childhood. But that's one kind of love. When he, what he learns when they meet as adults is that his love for her now, in reality, in the present, is greater than anything he had remembered or imagined. And there's another person in this scene, right? Giovanna. She remembers him. She sees him. She hears what he's done and why he's done it. 
and she joins him, spiritually speaking, in the adult equivalent of the golden garden of their childhood. She tells him that they are completely in tune. We understood each other without any words, she says. It's strange. I would have done what you did tonight. At moments here, I feel that I am in your place. It's you who listen when I say what you've said. And then he replies, also singing the same tune, with his own description of what they share and what he feels. He says, I felt a wall that shut us off from everyone else. They're together behind a wall. But he also says, I felt that I jumped into the waters of a clear spring. I saw for the first time. My world brightened. My veins filled with confidence and joy. It's as if I was deceived till now. I was released from the darkness of prison. The doors flew open to sunlight. The blue sky lifted all the heavy stones, and I breathed the freshest air. Now, metaphorically speaking, we've got what we sometimes think of as a mixed metaphor here. There was a wall that shut them off together and separated them from everyone else, but love also releases him from the darkness of prison. Being walled in with Giovanna doesn't mean that he's in prison, but rather the reverse. He is at his personal height. He sees the truth and speaks nothing but the truth. And then, when Giovanna expresses admiration for his courage, as she sees it, in defying the people of Florence, whom he serves, he tells her the truth about that, too. He's already, Prince of Ali is already in political jeopardy, regardless of this deal he's made to lift the siege on Pisa. And then when he tells her the truth, that cements her admiration, and she says, I am yours. Okay. And then she speaks the truth about her own actions. She tells him that she married Guido for protection and in gratitude, that she never expected to find passionate love. She married Guido because in her position as a woman alone, she would have incurred slander. She has, she says, accepted the consequences of her choice. She will not violate her marriage. Yet she states that if she'd been in Prince Ivali's position, if she had loved someone who had vanished or formed another connection, she would have come looking for him. As she says, it is never too late when you find a love that fills your life. I would have tracked my love day and night. Nothing would have stood in my way. So here's our situation in Act Two, and maybe now it's time to ask some questions. Some questions that the man and the woman, in fact, consider during that long night. First question, why did Gianello Principali not do what Giovanna says she would have done? She says, I would have tracked my love day and night. So why didn't he track his love day and night? Here's his answer. He says that he'd heard that Guido had made Giovanna happy and he would never want to get in the way of her happiness. So in other words, he went by report, but he has the motivation of not wanting to interfere with her happiness. Even now, this meeting has been arranged in order for him to see her and to speak the truth to her, not to persuade her to break her marriage. He never intended, in my view, to ask her to remove her cloak that night, much less to pack her bags. 
So that's the first question. You know, why doesn't he do what she says she would have done? Well, that's his explanation. Second question, why does Giovanna evidently not listen to her own words? She said, it is never too late. She says that the love she imagined in youth, the kind of love that fills your life, is not real for her, and it's not real for Prince of Ali either. That's why she says, you know, it's, it's not too late if you found that love, but she's saying that maybe we didn't. And she says that her love for Guido is more equal and constant and sure, and she says she is as happy as a woman can be, quote, who gave up passionate dreams of love, unquote. So... Was it real? She is saying, well, maybe it wasn't, and maybe this is all I get. But as we're watching and as we're thinking about these two people, as we see the way that they look at each other, even when they're not looking directly at each other, you know, we, you know she, she looks at him when he's talking and so on, and that's how it is on stage. You see them reacting. We recognize that the love she felt and desired in her youth was real probably was real, and that the loss of that love doesn't have to be final. Now, we, audience, are all familiar with the expression falling in love, which refers to the rapid onset of a romantic attraction. But I've never really liked that expression, because to fall means that you are lower, literally speaking, and that there's nowhere else to go. You just keep falling and falling deeper and deeper. And I've always preferred the expression rising in love, which refers to the ability of love to ennoble the human spirit, to recognize the best of which one is capable, to grasp the undeniable power of one's values, and to do whatever it takes to achieve them. And if it's rising, there's always somewhere else to go. One can continue to rise higher and higher. Well, as we see, these two people have risen in love and they're rising before our eyes, and the heights are still ahead. So, what's going to happen now? That's what, you know, that's what we see in Act 2. At the end of the act, Giovanna is bringing Prince of Ali back with her to Pisa under her protection, and she anticipates also under the protection of her husband. She does not intend to leave her husband for Prince of Ali. She herself has said that, you know, she's given up her dreams, and she considers the love in her marriage to be equal and constant and sure, and she's not going to violate it. So even though she and Prince of Ali have affirmed their love for each other, she has not decided to run off with him, and he hasn't decided to ask her to run off with him. She told him that they were speaking as if on a desert island, but they weren't on a desert island. They were in a camp near Pisa where Guido was waiting for news. And she expects that the news she brings will make him happy. She believes that he will be pleased to hear that Prince of Ali did not demand her sexual submission. She intends to tell him as soon as possible what has not happened. You know, wait, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you. And there is no sign to be sure that she's going to tell him exactly what has happened. You know, to repeat to him all the things that she and Prince of Ali have said to each other the whole truth about the love that fills their souls. And I don't think that she's intending to tell Guido that she married Guido for reasons other than true love. But she's going to tell him about what seemed to be topic A in his mind, what was going to happen that night. So that's what she 
thinks is going to be happening in Act 3. Now, we the spectators, we know that it's not likely to work out the way that Giovanna thinks, because we were watching Guido during Act 1, and we know there is trouble ahead. We saw his reaction to the news that she had agreed to go to Prince of Ali's camp. For one thing, he was angry toward his father uh, for transmitting the offer. For another, he was angry toward the, expressed anger toward the residents of the city for accepting the deal. And then he expressed anger toward Giovanna for agreeing to go. So he's angry three times. We noticed that for Guido, it was all about him, about the harm he was going to suffer. As he says, why my wife? Why not their wives? Just saying, you know, that's, that's what he's thinking. And he's thinking about, you know, the shame for the husbands. We noticed also that when he sent her off, there was no love in his manner. He sent her off with blunt and frank condemnation and with no attempt to understand her motivations. He didn't want to hear anything. He didn't want to say anything. And we recognize, as Vanna does not, that what angered him especially was her acceptance of the deal. And that's not going to change. It happened. The fact that the terms of the deal were not exacted doesn't change the fact that she agreed to go. And that Prince Ali turned out not to be a villain is not likely to matter to Guido. He's interested in Vanna and what she did. So if we've been paying attention to the middle of the play, we know that Giovanna believes several things. She believes that her husband is going to abide by the rules of hospitality. She believes that her husband loves her. She expects her husband to believe her. She believes that her marriage is founded on her husband's decency, which binds her to be loyal. That's a lot of things for her to believe. But we also know that she's told Prince of Ali it's never too late for love. Well, maybe it's also not too late to believe that those things that she believed before are not, or at least open to doubt. And of course, they're not true. So the key to the last act of the play, it's very suspenseful, is that we've been, it's a surprise, but we've been prepared. Guido thinks the worst of his wife when she tries to tell him the truth. And he is willing to believe only a lie. His feeling for her, whatever that feeling it is, it isn't love, has not ennobled him. So he violates the rules of hospitality. He threatens the life of the man who saved his city. Well, I could keep going, but you know, right there, it's over, you know, game over. So Vanna sees who her husband is, and her marriage is over. He's not her equal. She keeps trying to tell him, but you know, he's not listening. He's not her equal in any way. And since he will not believe the truth, she has to tell him a lie. She tells him that she lured Prince of Ali to Pisa in order to seek revenge for a rape that actually took place. Then she tells the truth that she intends to embrace Prince of Ali in a way that Prince of Ali and Marco, her father-in-law, understand fully, but her husband does not. And we, the spectators, you know, if you're listening and you're seeing it, we understand everything. We know what happened in Act 2, and we know what's going to happen here in Act 3 and afterwards, because we heard Prince of Ali say when he saw her that he felt himself freed from prison emerging into the sunlight. So I think it's time to literalize the metaphor. So 
what I've just done, really, it's what the play did for you, is to, uh, to show you what actually is happening in the play. Now, I made it explicit. I explained it. I'm, I don't know, it's not exactly subtitles or supertitles, but it's not the way they talk on stage, but this is what's actually happening. And when we watch the play, we are responding to these facts, whether or not they're expressed in the words of the characters. Because people don't explain themselves, always. Or if they explain themselves, they're not always telling everything that is part of the actual explanation. Prince of Ali didn't explain to anybody the full explanation for why he's making his offer to Pisa. There's no need. But he does need to tell Vana in a night brightened by full revelation and full truth. Giovanna doesn't explain to her husband why she's leaving him. She tries to tell him the truth about what happened the night before. That's not working. There'd be no use in trying to explain more things to him. He doesn't want the truth, and he cannot handle the truth, either about Prince of Ali, or about his own behavior, or about his own marriage. And Giovanna has learned that the man she married is not the man she believed him to be, and her marriage is therefore null and void. But Guido, if she tried to explain it to him, he wouldn't be able to understand that. And she doesn't need to explain it to us because we can figure it out. We see it. We've seen her journey. She doesn't have to remind us that she married Guido at a time when a woman alone would run the risk of slander. That's how she got into this situation to begin with. Well, now that she's leaving, we see that even her thinking about avoiding slander has changed. What will the world and the world's wife think about her now? What's Guido going to think about her now? He was so angry about her agreeing to spend a night with Prince of Ali, the enemy, in order to save the whole city. What's he going to say if he finds out, when he will have to find out, that she's going to spend a whole lifetime with the man she loves just because she wants to? That's not exactly good news for him, but he's earned it. You know, he's earned it. Brother, you asked for it, Guido. So Giovanna and Gianella Principal, you know, have, they've risen in love. They know who they are. They know whom they love. It's never too late. Nothing can stand in their way. No price is too high. No risk is too great. So what's going to happen now? Well, what had to happen has already happened. We don't need to see the sequel in order to know that they have lived now at the widest limit of their lives, at the utmost summit of their spirits. So that's the play. That's Maurice Maeterlinck's Monavana. And it's our play as well. Because when you experience great art, which this is, you have the opportunity to spend a few hours in a magnificent world and to rise in love as you relish that world. So that's the play. And now I'm going to go back to Maeterlinck and how he wrote it. Who was he? When and how did he write this play? And what happened to it afterwards? History part, biography, I guess. Maurice Maeterlinck was born in 1862 in Belgium. It's his birthday, right? August 29th, isn't that today? Yeah, okay, happy birthday. Um, okay, he's born on August 29th, 1862. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Okay, later on, um, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1911. And I'm going to quote from the citation. This is what they said when they gave him the prize, quote, 
In appreciation of his many-sided literary activities, and especially of his dramatic works, which are distinguished by a wealth of imagination and by a poetic fancy, which reveals, sometimes in the guise of a fairy tale, a deep inspiration, while in a, in a mysterious way, they appeal to the reader's own feelings and stimulate their imaginations, unquote. I don't think that's the greatest description of uh, certainly what makes this particular play great. If that description strikes you as less than an accurate description of Manavana, you're correct. This play is not a fairy tale. It doesn't appeal to feelings in a mysterious way, it's clear. It does not employ a poetic fancy. Now, he did write plays that were like that, but this wasn't one of them. It does describe the play The Bluebird, which was his biggest hit, and uh, The Death of Tintagil, which is one of the plays he thought of as, I'm not making this up, best performed by puppets or marionettes in order to convey, he said, the essential helplessness of human beings in the hands of fate. Well, that's not Monavana, okay? But just saying, but that's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's another kind of play that he wrote. But it's not all he wrote, and it's not all he thought. From about 1893 until 1918, he lived with and often wrote for Georgette Leblanc, an actor and an opera singer. They did not marry because she was already married and unable to get a divorce. They lived together all this time, mostly in France, and he wrote several plays for her. He wrote notably Marie-Victoire, he wrote Mary Magdalene, and also Monovana. Now, Georgette Leblanc is an interesting person. She was from a literary family. Her brother was Maurice Leblanc, author of the Arsène Lupin stories, detective stories, and she too became a writer. She composed two autobiographies, she composed some works for children, and various other miscellaneous pieces, including The Girl Who Found the Bluebird, A Visit to Helen Keller. She went and saw Helen Keller and wrote about that experience, the bluebird meaning happiness. Georgette was a woman of substance, and the plays that Maeterlinck wrote for Georgette, although not all of them were as strong as Monavana, could not have been performed by puppets. Several of the plays he wrote for her, even if they had some fairy tale elements, featured women who shaped their own lives. For example, in Ariadne and Bluebeard, 1901, Ariadna, the seventh wife of a man who has locked up the previous six, discovers his secret. She then attempts to free the other wives, and the other wives insist on remaining in prison. So she leaves them behind, she leaves her husband behind, and off she goes, free on her own. Okay, and then there's a play called Sister Beatrice, 1902, in which a nun elopes from the convent with a prince, okay? In her absence, the Virgin Mary takes her place and works miracles. When Beatrice returns, she refuses to be revered for the miracles attributed to her and insists instead on being known for her actions, including sinful actions that she has performed in the worldly world outside the convent. Well, Maeterlinck wrote this play for Georgette, and he wrote it at a very interesting time in their lives. He wrote it after the disaster, as she saw it, of Debussy's opera, Peleas and Melisande, which was based on Maeterlinck's play. And I'll tell you this story. She thought that she was gonna play the part of Melisande, and she told Maeterlinck that Debussy had agreed. They learned in December 1901 that someone else, Mary Garden, had been cast instead. Mary Garden was a Scottish operatic soprano. She was, in fact, well qualified as a singer, 
and according to JBC, had a gentle voice with its hesitantly tender and captivating charm, unquote. Well, that's whom JBC wanted for the part. Maeterlinck, very angry. He showed up at JBC's home in the Latin Quarter of Paris, walking stick in hand, brandishing it in the face of JBC's wife, saying, you see this stick, madame? I am going to beat your husband with it because he refuses to allow Georgette to play Mélissande. He subsequently sued to keep the opéra comique from producing the opera. He lost because it turned out that the composer, not the playwright, had the final say regarding casting. According to an agreement Maeterlinck had signed back in uh, 1895 and I guess forgot about. Uh, in early April 1902, Le Figaro newspaper published a letter from Maeterlinck saying he considered the opera to be strange and hostile and that he hoped it would fail. It premiered April 30th, 1902, and it did not fail. Well, after the disappointment of losing the part in Peleas and Les Sondes, Georgette implored Maeterlinck to write a play that would suit her exactly, and Monavana was the result. It was the only one of his plays to be set in the Renaissance, a period of which Georgette, Georgette was especially fond. In preparing to write it, he did a lot of reading and research in history and literature about the period. An American academic, William Lyon Phelps, noticed that the political circumstances, the siege of Pisa by a mercenary in the pay of Florence, were found also in an 1846 verse drama called Loria by Robert Browning. And this was a blank verse tragedy that included a similar political situation, but without the central romantic situation of the commander's love for the wife of the leader of the besieged city. So this Phelps, you know, goes into print and he says, look, 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 look what I found. And he speculated that perhaps Maeterlinck thought he could get away with it because people hadn't read Browning. Well, when, when Maeterlinck found out about Phelps's discovery, he wrote him a letter, okay? And he said, yes, of course I admire Browning. And if I had intended to hide my use of an aspect of the same story, I would not have used the same cities. Okay, and then afterwards, you know, Phelps got quite complimentary and, you know, wrote nice pieces about him, but occasionally you'll still see that people say, oh, no, you know, Maeterlinck plagiarized. No, you know, he you used, um, you know, based a different work on aspects of the same actual story. And while we're on the subject, there are parallels with other texts as well. The names of the three principal characters in Monavana have counterparts in Renaissance history and literature. Dante, wrote of a woman named Monavana, or Giovanna, who was adored by a poet named Guido, who was a friend of Dante's. Monavana was also the title of a painting by the British poet and artist Dante, the other Dante, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, whom Maeterlinck admired. And then there were other parallels. Something similar to the play's central situation is found in a play by Shakespeare, another writer Maeterlinck admired, in Troilus and Cressida. Cressida, a Trojan woman in love with Troilus, a Trojan man, is traded to the Greeks in exchange for Antenor, a Trojan captured by the Greeks. She yields sexually to Diomedes, the Greek who arrives to conduct her to the Greek camp. Now, none of this is to say that Monavana is a rerun of Robert Browning or William Shakespeare revisited or history in a blender, you know, um, any more than this play itself is a rehash of Tosca or any other dramas in which a woman's sexual submission is deemed to be suitable as a trading card 
for the acquisition of a value or the removal of a threat. The fact that there are parallels doesn't mean that that's where Mendeleev got the idea. What instead we have is an idea that he got through wanting to write a good play for Georgette. And Vanna is a wonderful character. Uh, she's a woman who is loved by two very different men, both of whom, for different reasons, incur her reproach. She's a woman who acts to save her city, a task ordinarily possible only for a military leader, virtually always a man. She's a woman who admits her love to and for a man whom she does not expect to be able to spend her life with. She's a woman who makes a daring decision right in front of our eyes when she opens her eyes and after seeing the truth through a long night about the man she loves, then grasps the full truth in full daylight about the man to whom she is married. So a lot going on for Monavana, and we see it. Now, I'm not the first and I won't be the last to point out that the role for Georgette as others have pointed out, has some parallels with a role she never played, but one that's been mentioned as part of the turn-of-the-century theatrical atmosphere. I'm thinking about Nora Helmer in the final scene of Ibsen's Doll's House. Nora informs her husband that she cannot live with him any longer because she's been living with a stranger. She needs to leave because her husband is not the man she thought he was, because conventional religion is not wisdom, because conventional ties are not obligations, and because the law is far from a moral code. With certainty and clarity, Nora sets out to live her own life. Now, of course, there are a number of differences. Uh, Giovanna repudiates her husband without making a speech to him. And Nora, of course, is going off on her own rather than with Prince of Ali, you know, a man she loves. But what we see here is that she's not, Giovanna is not just choosing life away from Torvald, but her own life, you know, the life of her choice, the man she was married to turned out to be a stranger, and now it turns out that the man she thought was a stranger is the man who has always loved her. But there is something in common, a woman coming into full knowledge and full power, and I think that uh, Vanna out Nora's Nora Helmer, as in fact Guido out Torvald's Torvald, and he's worse than Torvald. The point is not, in our play, not that she loves Prince of Ali more, there's not a contest or a grading, but she does love him more than she ever loved Guido. The point is that the true horror she confronts is what Guido thinks of her and of the nature of human nature. She wants to live anywhere else, anywhere other than with Guido in Guido's world. Like Nora, she's out of here. Okay. Well, this was, of course, a great part for Georgette. As a dramatic character, she's performing on stage for Marco and for Prince of Ali because no one else on stage gets it. She misleads Guido into thinking that Prince of Ali was not capable of restraining himself from raping her. She misleads Guido into thinking that, as he believes, she's capable of tricking a man into walking to his own destruction. She pretends that she has fooled Prince of Ali into entering a trap, but we know whom she's really fooling, okay? And she even says it. She says, men do not see the truth and believe only the lie. Well, there he is, Guido, right in front of us, you know, not believing the truth and believing only the lie. She speaks openly in Guido's hearing of the passion with which she will embrace Prince of Ali. She knows that he believes only the lie of the rape and not the truth that Prince of Ali was a man of honor. 
And thus, she can speak the truth of her love for Prince of Ali and know that her husband will not hear it as truth. And truth is such a theme in what she talks about, right? She says, I, I mean, I can't do it as well as Sharon Bowers did last night, but, you know, she says it. She says, I've never lied, but today of all days, I have to tell the deepest truth. Listen, Guido, and look at me as if you've never known me until now. This is the first and only hour you have in your power to love me as I want to be loved. I speak in the name of all our life, of all that I am, of all that you are to me. Be strong enough to believe what will sound unbelievable. This man spared my honor. He had all the power. I was given over to him, but he never touched me. I've come from his tent as if he were my brother. And Guido says, why? And she says, because he loved me, which is true. But the truth is dangerous when one speaks it to Guido. And she keeps trying, look into my eyes, Guido. See for the last time, last chance, all my strength, my faithfulness, all that I owe you. It is not shame that speaks, it is truth. This man never touched me. And he says, good, excellent. Then there's nothing more to say. Now I know it all. Ha, he doesn't know anything. Is it truth or is it love? I understand, you wanted to save him. I didn't know what a single night could have done to change a woman I loved so much. But this is not the way to save him. And then he talks to the crowd. Instead of listening to her and speaking to her, he speaks to the crowd. And he says, hear me all of you, for the last time, I make an oath. I will not ruin her. They love each other. I'll let them leave her with my consent. No harm. Hear me, Vanna. Answer me. Did this man take your honor? Yes or no? One word. The truth. That's all I ask. This is not a judgment or a trap. I've taken my oath. They're all witnesses. And she says, I told you the truth. He never touched me. She tells the truth. He swore an oath. Everybody's witnesses. But when she tells the truth, he brutally casts aside the oath he's just sworn because he thinks she's lied and that that makes his oath not an oath. And he says, good, you have spoken. You've condemned him. There's nothing more to do. Take him to our prison. So telling the truth is a death sentence for Prince of Ali. But he already told her what she needs to do. He said, this is not the way to save him. So she's got to do something else. So if the truth can't save him, she needs to try something else. And that turns out to be the lie. When she does that, she does what she has to do to save the man she loves. She closes the door to any future truth-telling to her husband or any future marriage with him or respect for him. He's not worth it. Okay. Now, this is a great part for Georgette. It was not exactly a great part for Mary Garden, for the performer with the gentle voice and hesitantly tender charm. Now, interestingly, Mary Garden did eventually play the role when it was turned into an opera but not on the dramatic stage. I think that when the acting had to do all of the work, she couldn't, you know, Georgette was much better, but when it was a musical matter, Mary Garden was capable of doing that. So here's how it worked out with the performances of the play. The play premiered in Paris on May 17, 1902. The director, Aurélien Marie Lunier, known as Lunier Poe, played the role of Marco himself. Now, this director, by the way, had played roles in several Maeterlinck plays, and he also performed in at least 12 Ibsen plays. So he was used to you know, serious plays. The play was greeted with admiration for Maeterlinck's dramatic st style and skill, although those who had valued him for his mysticism, magic, and marionettes were less than delighted with the heart-stopping passion and breathtaking suspense they saw on the stage because audiences look for different things. And here I'm just gonna take a minute to say something about audiences. 
and some of you have heard this story before. There's a story attributed to George Bernard Shaw or Oscar Wilde, could have been both of them, that a play of his was premiering. And a friend of his said to him, your play is opening tomorrow. I hope the play will be a success. And the playwright said, well, I wrote the play. I know the play. I know that the play is a, is a success. I hope that the audience will be a success. Okay, so sometimes the audience is a success. Well, worked out pretty well in Paris, and then it was performed in New York in October 1905, and this was the first of Maeterlinck's plays to be performed in the United States. It was big news. It was the first English translation of the play ever to be performed. It was directed by Minnie Maddern Fisk, another champion of Ibsen, at the Manhattan Theater, and the role of Vanna was played by Bertha College, who later took the play on the road. So, did well in Paris, did quite well in New York, and it was performed in other places too. There's some evidence it played in Russia as early as 1903 with Viera Komisarzewskaya as the star. And we know for sure that it was performed in 1904 by uh, Meyerhold at the Association of New Drama. It became a standard play in the Russian repertory at the time, and it was performed by scores of theatrical companies in the USA and Europe. And then there's the story of the London production. And I sum up that story as better late than never. So we got Paris, 1902. We've got Russia, 1903 or 4. New York, 1905. London, well, there's a wait. It was performed in 1902 in private, but it wasn't licensed to be performed in public until the summer of 1914. So what went wrong? There was a private performance at Victoria Hall in Bayswater, London on June 19, 1902, pretty close to the Paris premiere. And in fact, it was in French. And in fact, it was the Paris troupe that came over to do it. Several critics attended and admired it, but the play was denied a license for public performance. Queen Alexandra found the play offensive, either because of a moral issue that Giovanna had accepted Prince Ivali's offer to save her city in return for spending the night with him, or because of a costume issue, the alleged inadequacy of her costume. She's described, after all, as appearing at Prince Ivali's camp, nu sous son manteau, naked under her cloak. The responsible authority for refusing to license the play was a man called George Alexander Redford, who was this was a job. The Lord Deputy Examiner of Plays, who cited, quote, the immorality of the plot, unquote, noting that, quote, the whole plot of the play, to my mind, was not proper for the stage, unquote. It's also been said that the Lord Chamberlain suggested that Maeterlinck rewrite it. Now, Maeterlinck did, in fact, rewrite Monavana in one respect. Between 1902 and 1909, he modified the ending, not to change it, but to make it unmissably clear. You remember what happens at the end of the play, as we saw it. Near the end of Act Three, Guido hands his wife the key to the front door of Prince of Ali's cell, believing that she intends to revenge herself on him. He is tricked. He doesn't know that she also has the key to the back door of the cell and that she has a plan of her own. Marco, Vanna's father-in-law, is not fooled. He knows what she intends. Well, maybe some audiences were a little more like Guido then they were like Marco and didn't really understand what Giovanna had in mind. So, in the opera version, 
And of course, in the opera, you know, they're singing, it's maybe harder to hear all the words. In the opera version, in 1909, we see a fourth act, much shorter than the three acts we know. The fourth act, it's about two pages, opens on Prince of Ali in his cell. He's managed to free himself from the chains that Vanna had placed on his arms, and then she appears at the door of the back of the cell. She appears at the front, opens the door at the back of the cell, and leads him out into the sunlight beyond Pisa and darkness. And that's the end of the opera. So, Malik was willing to add a scene, but not to add any implied undergarments or to change the language that conveyed Prince of Ali's terms regarding Vanna's attire. You see, he understood that the objection made no sense, and he was in good company. A whole team of British artists agreed with him. The London Times received and published on June 30th, 1903, a letter entitled Maeterlinck and the Censor. It was written by the drama critic Arthur Simmons and was signed by luminaries such as novelists Thomas Hardy and George Meredith, poets William Butler Yeats and Algernon Charles Swinburne, the, the drama critic William Archer, and the painter Lawrence Ama Tadema, and other people. But these are names you'd recognize, and they all signed the letter. And then there were hearings on the censorship issues. And this has all been documented, and I'm going to read you some of the statements. Here's one from one of the speakers, Herbert Samuel. He says, as to Monavana, there could never possibly have been the least difficulty about the play had there not been a censor. Monavana, the woman, would have been seen by the audience entering the conqueror's tent. Either she would be dressed, and like everybody else in the theater, would be naked beneath her clothes, or she would not be dressed. In the one case, no one could reasonably be offended. In the other, the actress would be subject to arrest for indecency under the common law. Unfortunately, says Herbert Samuel, the Lord Chamberlain's examiner of the period, not being exceptionally clear-headed, was extremely puzzled by stage direction. He misread naked beneath her cloak as equivalent for insufficiently attired. As it happened, Maeterlinck did not mean to indicate that Monavana was insufficiently attired. He meant to indicate that she was decently and sufficiently attired, albeit in a single garment, but that she came to the conqueror's tent symbolically prepared to endure the surrender of her body to the conqueror if she might thereby save her people. So I, he understood. Okay, and then here's another quotation from another one of the contenders. His name was Hugh Law, and he says, is it not a fact, without going into the details of the play, that in that case the lady leaves the camp not only unharmed, but unharmed because the hero is represented as being very much in love with her. And it's not in fact the whole idea of the play that love is not only not identical with, you know, savage, unrestrained desire, but it's the enemy of such things. Do you call that immoral? And Redford said, can't make this up, I certainly call the play immoral from the point of view of the examiner of plays at any rate. Okay, true story. Now, it's true, I think, that this whole story about Maeterlinck and the censor has elements of comedy. What was the censor actually afraid of? Was it the word naked? Was it the possibility of what we now call a wardrobe malfunction? Yeah. What did he think was going to happen here? But more seriously, I think we can see that the story of Manavana and the censors has parallels with the situation of Vana and her husband. He insists on taking the worst possible view of the situation 
as if any man alone with a woman naked beneath her cloak would have only one purpose in mind or would want only one thing or as if any woman who reported the man in question restrained himself on account of love had to be telling a lie. Guido believes that the play's central situation is indecent and offensive, and so does the censor. Well, Guido got what was coming to him, justice arrived for him, and in time the censor also reaped not only ridicule, but repudiation. And the man who wrote the letter, the letter was published with all the signatures, was not only the defender of the play from the censors, but also a really smart reader of the play. And here's what he said about the play. I like this. He said, here is a play in which a lie becomes more vital than truth, and only what we are accustomed to call virtue shows itself mean, petty, and even criminal. And it is most like life, as life really is, in this, that at any moment the whole course of the action might be changed the position of any character altered or even reversed by a mere decision of the will, open to each, and that things happen as they do because it is impossible in the nature of each that the choice could be otherwise. So it's the nature of the characters. Now, what I was just quoting from is from a book that he wrote, and that play had a formal written dedication to Maurice Maeterlinck in Friendship and Admiration. So, you know, he was a champion of play, he was a champion of Maeterlinck, and he got that letter written and published. Now, there's a sequel. The sequel to the censorship episode, well, a couple sequels. Uh, the play was performed in English a few years later, in 1911, but still without license, at the Court Theatre in Sloan Square. And the translation by Alfred Sutro preserved most of the text, but judging from the published play, it rendered naked beneath her cloak as clad only in her mantle, with no specific mention of that word, you know, naked. And um, in the published version of the play, with the tra that translation, Sutro says that Maeterlinck approved of it. So it was okay with him to render it as clad only in her mantle. But wait a few years. In the summer of 1914, 11 years, after the censorship controversy, Monavana was finally performed in a London theater in a publicly licensed performance at the Queen's Theater. And the audience included a real queen, the same one who'd had objections back in 1902 and 1903. On opening night, Queen Alexandra was there, and not only was Queen Alexandra there, but her sister was there, the Dowager Empress of Russia. And the play got good reviews. Splendid acting, excited and affecting romantic drama. One reviewer said it was absurd that we should have had to wait so long to see it. This piece may be reckoned the most effective besides being one of the most beautifully written things to which Monsieur Maeterlinck has put his name. And the production had big stars. Constance Collier as, as Giovanna and Lionel Atwill as Prince of Ali. And even the walk-ons were interesting. Jean Rhys, R-H-Y-S, who was later the author of Wide Sargasso Sea, famous novelist, uh, she had a part as a peasant. And Eva Le Gallienne, who was later famous as, you know, as, a, as a writer and producer and an actor in the States, another champion of Ibsen, um, she made her theatrical debut in the play as a page. So this was, you know, this, this was pretty exciting. And I mean, especially in retrospect, when you think of all the people who were there. Opening night in London was July 21, 1914, and the play continued its run in August. 
There were six performances at the Queen's Theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue, still there, along Street in central London, and to this day, Shaftesbury is considered to be the heart of London's West End. And then there were eight more at the Lyric, a larger theater, also on Shaftesbury. So now we gotta kinda go back in time. July and August, 1914. That's an interesting time, right? What else was happening that summer, and who else was in town at the time? Well, July 28th, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and Duchess Sophie of Austria had been assassinated. And on July 28th, Austria declared war on Serbia. That was the start of World War I, or they didn't call it World War I, but yeah, we, we call it World War I now. And that war disrupted many things, including travel plans for people who had nothing to do with the war. For example, there was a family from St. Petersburg, Russia, Papa Nizinovi, Mother Anna, and the three sisters, Elisa, Natasha, and Nora. And they were vacationing in Switzerland that summer when the war started. They couldn't go straight home. Their name, by the way, was Rosenbaum. Okay? And uh, they had to detour through England, Norway, Sweden, and Finland in order to get home. Elisa was the eldest of the three sisters. You know her by a different name. Right? The name she invented years later when she came to the United States, you know her as Ayn Rand. Now, I'm not here to tell you that nine-year-old Elisa made her way to the theater and saw Mona Vanna then, but it's, it's close. Well, for one thing, of course, it was performed in English, and her English at the time would not have equipped her to follow the play. If it had been presented in French, she would have done just fine. But it was being presented in English, and even if she'd gone there, she couldn't have seen it. But she was there. She was the babysitter. And as we know, she entertained her sisters with stories, and that was the summer that she discovered how much fun it was to make up stories, and ooh, there's a job. Um, that's a career, and that that was a career she wanted for herself. But, you know, so even without the opportunity to see Monavon on stage, it was a very good summer. But her parents might have gone. I've got no way of knowing that. They didn't leave a diary. They might have wanted to see this play because they could well have been familiar with it from its Russian performances and thought, well, you know, here we are. And there were not that many plays on because of the war. You know, so if you're in London that week, there aren't that many plays on. This is one they may have been familiar with. They could well have gone. I don't know. But it sort of charms me that, uh, you know, from different angles, I'm coming on the same place and the same time, and I know about different things happening in that city at that time. Now... I don't know exactly when Elisa Ayn Rand came to know the play. For example, I really don't know if she was familiar with it when she studied in school Alexander Pushkin's novel and verse Yevgeny Yegin, which is a Russian classic, and which she definitely studied in school because we know what she said about having to write on the subject. She was assigned to write an essay about Yevgeny Yegin, and this is quoting her. She says, I wrote that I disapproved of the whole story and that I particularly disapproved of the heroine. I thought she was silly, weak, and deserved what happened to her, unquote. What happened to her? Well, when the man the heroine loved when she was younger meets up with her as an adult and confesses his love, and I'm quoting Ayn Rand again, she tells him that she still loves him and always will, but she's married to another man and she will always be faithful to him. I mean, in the Russian, it's kind of sing-song. You know, it's... Seems very insincere, when, in my opinion, when she says it. And Ayn Rand says, I remember being enormously indignant with her attitude. So that, that was Pushkin's Tatiana, and she was no Monavana. I don't know if Ayn Rand knew Monavana then, but if she did, that would have been a contrast. 
But I do know that she came to admire the play enthusiastically. We've got documentation on that. In 1944, when she's in New York, in, you know, she'd... Uh, been to New York, she'd written The Fountainhead, and now she's out in California working on the screenplay for The Fountainhead. She heard from Ed, Edward Spencer Cowles, a physician who knew Maeterlinck in New York, and she heard from him that Maeterlinck admired The Fountainhead. And she replied on September 24th, 1944, I was frankly and pleasantly stunned. Pleasantly stunned, isn't that great? Um, to hear of Maurice Maeterlinck's compliment to my work, would you thank him for me and give him my most respectful regards? It was strange that your letter reached me just when I was trying to interest a studio here in making a new screen version of Monavana, which I consider one of the greatest plays in all world literature. Okay, so that's one. You know, she hears from Cowles. Not long after that, she learned from D.L. Chambers, who was president of Bob's Merrill, the publisher of the, of the Fountainhead, that Maeterlinck was a fan of the Fountainhead. On January 12th, Chambers wrote to her as follows. In a confidential way, I have heard that Maurice Maeterlinck recently wrote the Archduke Franz Joseph of Austria, quote, you know that without doubt the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand is one of the grand books of the year. You are in good company with your publisher. He, Maeterlinck, was referring to the fact that Bob Smerrill had recently published a book about the Archduke. Well, when Ayn Rand heard that, she wrote back and she said, thank you for letting me know. So she knew she'd now heard twice about Maeterlinck's admiration for the Fountainhead. Years after that, and in fact years after Maeterlinck had died, she heard once again of his high estimate of the novel. Her friend, Ruth Beebe Hill, was a fan of the Fountainhead, and she was a friend, and after Ayn Rand and Frank O'Connor moved back to New York, Ruth and her husband were living in the California home. At a books and authors luncheon, Ruth met Patrick Mahoney, who knew Maeterlinck, and who in fact wrote several books on him, some of which I used in preparing this talk, although those books don't mention The Fountainhead, but Ruth met Mahoney and he mentioned The Fountainhead. According to Ruth, Mahoney said that Maeterlinck had recently expressed the wish to meet the author of The Fountainhead. During the time Maeterlinck was reading it, Mr. Mahoney was his guest, and each evening your book came up for discussion. Mr. Mahoney tells me that Maeterlinck was more impressed with it than any book he had read and asked Mr. Mahoney to find out more about you, perhaps to meet you and to write him about you. You know, that's pretty strong. Unfortunately, I can't put the two of them in the same room, but you know, that's quite strong on Maeterlinck's part. Now, Leonard Peikoff has explained in his lecture on the play, and I'm quoting now, you really have to say that the theme of this play is the same as the theme of The Fountainhead in essence. He doesn't distinguish the second-hander versus the first-hander or the consciousness that accompanies them, but he has the idea of connecting selfishness with nobility and the highest aspirations of man with the soul of the morally elite, as against the petty desires of the masses or the ordinary people who care for very little and who are busy making sacrifices and expecting to receive them. This is absolutely the fountainhead. And so it should be no surprise to you that Ayn Rand loved this play, and I hope no surprise to you that Maeterlinck loved the fountainhead. So, I think that we can see why there would have been admiration on both sides. The storylines, of course, are fundamentally different, as are the conflicts and the characters. Dominique Francon is not Giovanna Colonna. Prince of Ali is not Howard Rourke. But there is one other piece of documentation that I think is pertinent here to the similarity of the spirit of the love in the work. 
because during this very time that Ayn Rand wrote to say, I'm trying to interest the studios in Monavana, she was working on a screenplay. She was working on the screenplay of Love Letters, which is officially an adaptation of a novel by Chris Massey. But the passage I'll read you is, I think, pure Ayn Rand. And the screenplay's drafts are dated September 12th to 25th, 1944. So we're right there in that same week, okay? And the film, as you know, was, was released a um, year later, uh, October of 1945. And here's what I'm gonna read to you. It's from when, without giving everything away, uh, Singleton, a woman who has suffered a shock and a loss of memory, nevertheless remembers well a man she loved. And this is what she says. I don't remember his name or his face. It seems very long ago. He wrote to me. I remember his letters. I think very few people are happy. They wait all their lives for something to happen to them, something great and wonderful. They don't know what it is, but they wait for it, and it never happens. What they want is the kind of spirit I found in those letters, a spirit that makes life beautiful. I loved that man. I loved him more than my own life. I still love him. Well, the spirit and language of those pages, you know, from September 1944, remind me of Maeterlinck. And we know that she was, from the letter that she wrote, that she was trying to interest a studio in doing a version of Monavana. So it's, it's as if she's got her own screenplay and Monavana in her mind at the same time. Well, I'm gonna be pausing in a little bit to take questions, but before that, I had two more little connections that I wanted to share with you. And one of them is certain and explicit, and the other one is possible and implicit. Okay, here's the explicit one. Uh, this comes from a letter written to Ayn Rand's husband, Frank O'Connor, by her friend, Isabel Patterson. The letter was written just before Pat set out on a trip to visit her friends in California. As you may know, the friendship did not survive that trip. But before the visit, on May 19, 1948, Pat wrote to Frank, who had sent her a letter and a ticket, and she wrote this. I've been scrambling around to get some sort of apparel at least one coat and one dress for the trip. Got the coat, an exhausting ordeal. If no dress, I'll be all buttoned up in the coat, like Monavana. Okay, so clearly she expected that Hein and Frank would know Monavana, and clearly, you know, Pat knew it herself. Now, that's the explicit one. Now, here's the implicit one, where Monavana is not actually mentioned. But I, I wonder. Okay, this comes from a novel Ayn Rand outlined, planned, when she was a teenager in Soviet Russia. When she was 18, she was outlining this novel she later referred to as the grandfather of Atlas Shrugged. She recounted its plot line years later in biographical interviews. And she said it was about, quote, the men of ability withdrawing from the world and the world perishing without them. Only the leader of this was a woman and not a man, unquote. She didn't write this novel, and she didn't bring the outline with her to the States. But here's the essence as she described it. The heroine, a woman of unusual beauty, goes around the world collecting great men for a purpose of her own. The last holdout is a great inventor. After she sees the test flight of a new airplane he has invented, he receives a message on a wireless device in his laboratory. What is this, a wireless device in his laboratory? Well, Ayn Rand commented that it was a kind of a science fiction device 
similar to radio or telegram, but private. Quote, you have it in your own room, unquote. Well, really, you wanted to know who really invented the internet? <laughs> okay, clearly, yes, I ran. Okay, wireless device in your own room. Okay, and this is what the message said after the test flight of his new airplane. I need your services. I will buy you. I offer a million dollars. And then he replies, I don't need your services. I will buy you. I offer two million dollars. She replies, I accept. And then he tells her he will expect her in his laboratory a year from that day, and then he has to go out and earn two million dollars. Okay, so he earns two million dollars. The day arrives, there's a knock at the door, and there she is. He puts two million dollars on the table, and the woman in Ayn Rand's planned novel, as she remembers describing it, well, she was like Monavana, naked beneath her cape. Okay, so I'm going to, and, and Ayn Rand says that when she told the story to her father, she thought he was going to be really shocked, you know, and um, well, he, he was actually impressed rather than, oh no, how did, he said, you know, how do you think of such things? But um, she didn't get the bad reaction that she thought she might have gotten, you know, teenage girl, father, protective and so on, but um, he apparently appreciated her talent. So I think that's kind of a Monavana moment for us. So I'm going to stop. I've got, as you know, you've heard me before. I've always got more to say, but I thought that now I'd take questions and see what you want to ask me. So. Um, I think the play had one weak spot which is that it was not clear uh, that Prince Evala deserved Monavana's love. Um, their childhood affair was sort of accidental. But um, what I see is that Prince Evala is a master strategist. And the master strategist understands his enemy. So he includes the clause that Monavana is to be naked under the manteau um, precisely because that is going to make Guido jealous. And Guido's character will be exposed. And as a strategic thinker, he knows that once Monavana sees Guido's true character, um, her love interest will shift. Is there a question there? Well, yeah, I, I just... it's not so much of a question as um, something that was missing from the theatrical presentation. Okay, I'm still, is the question, well, is there something missing from the yeah, play? Or, or? Yes, is, uh, no, I don't think it's really missing from the play, um, but was it missing from the performance?
Okay. All right. Well, the I guess there's a maybe the question is, um, is this a motivation of uh, Prince of Ali's that we're not seeing here? Well, here's the thing about a play. Uh, as opposed to a novel, a novel might give you a certain kind of access to people's thoughts and plans and so on. And when it's a play, it doesn't always work to have them make big speeches to strangers about what they're thinking. Now, of course, when it's Shakespeare, they do soliloquies, and the soliloquies are addressed to us, the audience. This is not done in that style. So I guess the question is, how do you know what someone's thinking if the person doesn't tell you? That's the first thing. Second is, if in fact the goal is to expose Guido's character, you might have noticed that that could have gone extremely badly because Guido even uh, acts as if he's going to lock her up in prison. And if he locks her up in prison, she's not exactly going to say, ooh, 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 I get, I'm, I'm going to go escape and run off to Prince of Ali. She doesn't even know who Prince of Ali is. So merely exposing Guido's character wouldn't necessarily, I, I don't, and also how she's going to run off if she's in prison, she doesn't have any keys. Uh, what I think is true is that it does work that way, but the question of whether Prince of Ali planned it that way, I don't, I don't actually see how that, would make sense. Well, now, now, he is a military leader, and maybe military leaders have ways of planning things that, since I'm not one, I wouldn't be able to think about. But that would, I guess, be the question. Is, I, if I, you think want to write, I think there are two more indications. Uh, and Marco, at that time, is an admirer of Prince Valle already. Yes, that's true. Uh, one is convincing the city council to ask Mona and not her husband. Now, in the Europe of that time, it would have been unheard of to ask a woman directly. And yet, that, this is what Marco is suggesting to the city council. Ask Mona directly, not ask her husband. And I suspect that that is also part of uh, Prince Valle's ambush, Prince Valle's tactic. Well, I guess the, that's an interesting, that, that whole question of who gets asked, that's actually a, a really interesting point, because I think we would be thinking about the whole situation differently if it were a matter of the council voting and off you go, you know, we're drafting you into with this, you know, in, into naked beneath your cloak service here, um, that would not be proper. It would, it, that would be really bad if the city were to order her to do it against her will. So I think, in fact, the nature of the situation is that it has to be her choice, and she has to be willing, and it wouldn't even work if Guido, Guido doesn't realize. That's also part, of, I think, maybe part of the ambush, which is true, is that Marco, who takes his time explaining things, don't you love it? And he wants to talk about statues, and he wants to talk about Plato and Aristotle and Homer. And, um, and Guido, meanwhile, is, you know, cash value, what's, what's happening here. But Marco is taking his time to explain things in terms of what's important to him. And Marco himself made that choice of talking to the council, talking to Giovanna, and now it comes to Guido, who does have the ability to stop it. He could kill her. He could lock her up. She couldn't go and do this if he were to lock her up or kill her. 
So in fact, he's got other ways of expressing his character uh, and of uh, revealing himself other than being angry and cross, as he is. But it's also true that Prince Zavali sets up a situation in which Vanna doesn't know very much, which is kind of interesting. All she knows is she gets the chance to save her city and that she's willing to do that. And I didn't mention this, but maybe think about it for a minute. How does anybody even know he's going to abide by the deal, hmm? Okay, suppose off she goes, and then he says, I changed my mind. No food. Um, you know, I'm not saving you. Um, if he's really a barbarian, then he would do that. So they're operating within some framework in which they think he will not change the deal. So I, so I think that you could say that there's a certain courtly background to this. Not technically, you know, the, the, the knights, but, but the sense of... Um, they expect some kind of abiding by the deal and honor, which is why it's especially uh, striking when Guido swears an oath and when Guido doesn't abide by sanctuary hospitality. He's not following the rules of his own culture. He's the, he's the real outlaw around here. But I think you're right in saying, I, you know, fundamentally, there's the question of what's in Prince of Ali's mind, and I think we know more about that from what he says to Vanna, but that, of course, is after he's already seen her. And the question of why, how he might have explained it beforehand, we don't have access to that, right? We're not, there's not a prologue in which that's explained to us. And what we do see is that, and I think this is powerful, what is it that finally wins her over? It's when she hears the truth from him about the fact that he didn't actually risk his life by arranging this deal and offering to lift the siege. That, that's what wins her. You know, that she's, he speaks the truth. And it's a truth that could be seen as to his discredit and of taking away one of the bargaining chips. But he, he says, I, I wouldn't want to win a single one of your smiles with a lie. So I, I think that that's, and ultimately, of course, it's up to her. You know, we don't have to be in love with Prince of Ali, but she does. You know, and that's, and that's what we see, is that she, she sees him and she, she loves him. And it's not just that he's the non-Guido. <laughs> that doesn't hurt, okay, that, uh, that it's, it's time to get away from Guido, but that she also, she admires him. And she has the power herself of saving him, which is, which is an achievement. One wouldn't always have that. Okay, now I see there are people over at the mic. I mean, I know your people, but I, I don't have uh, lights on your faces. Um, this yeah. is sort of on the same point, but I uh, was well, I was thinking, you said that you didn't think Prince of Ali was planning to remove her cloak, and I don't disagree. But given that, I was wondering why he put the condition on in the first place that she would be naked because it seems like, under the cloak, because it seems like it would put a huge amount of additional stress on both Vanna and Guido. Mm -hmm. And I can see Maeterlinck putting it in as a way of directing the audience down, a, down uh, an erroneous path. But how does that fit with the character of Prince of Ali? Okay, you, well, I, th I think that that's, that's an interesting thing. You, you know, why is there the assumed threat when there's actually no intention of delivering on it because he is a person of honor. Well, I think it's part of uh, setting up a situation that seems remotely credible. You know, um, I'll remove, I'll, I'll send all the food if you'll agree to a coffee date. You know, just... Pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. Yeah, but it, but it, it also 
why, you know? And, um, and here, I think there's a certain symbolic uh, representation of submission, which fits with the military situation. You know, that um, I'm not taking your whole city, but one of you needs to submit to me. As indeed in some military situations, there's a battle of champions. Now, this isn't a battle in the sense that she's got out her sword to fight with him, but we've already seen him facing a sword, right? When he got wounded by Trivulzio, and then, of course, she gets wounded by the, um, you know, by the shot when she's on the way in, and then the two of them, well, they're both wounded, and, they, and that's one more thing that they have in common because it's also they need to be healed. I, I think you're right in saying that there's a reasonable question there, but dramatically it makes sense that it sets up a situation. You know, it sets up a situation that nobody thinks it's a mistake. You mean what? And why her? Well, conceivably, you know, it's, it's, she's the wife of the leader, and he does apparently say he loves her, and that's mysterious. I mean, I think that if he set out and said, hey, guess what, I'm in town, remember the garden. Let's do it again. You know, let's have lunch. Um, you know, she might, that, that would be more puzzling. This, at least, it's unacceptable in that, you know, it would be unacceptable if he really were the kind of person to make a deal like that. But she's willing to launch herself into the unknown and to see what happens. Because what she knows will happen is she believes he's going to save the city. He's going to save the city, which means that she's going to save the city. And how often does she get a chance to save the city? So I think that that's, it's not unbelievable, although it certainly is odd. So I think that's what's going on. I think that that's why that's, that's the condition. Um, and in fact, it's a nice way to put it because he doesn't actually say that certain actions need to take place and be verified and witnesses and who knows what. You know, video at 10, you know, it, it's, um, it's, it's a matter of that, uh, you know, she arrived prepared, and yet, indeed, you know, decently attired, albeit in a single gar garment. So, in fact, it's the kind of condition that someone could meet without its being guaranteed that consequences would follow. I think that's, that's how it works dramatically. But you'd have to ask Prince of Ali. Shoshana? Yes. Can we take an online question next from uh, yes. Nikos? Yes. Hi. Hi, Shoshana. Hi, everyone. So we have a question from Stephanie, and she asks, did Georgette ever get to play Vanna? I assume she means Georgette LeBlanc, the, the lover of the writer. Yeah, she, yeah, of course. She was there for the premiere. Um, you know, she performed it at, at the premiere. That was her part. It was written for her. And she just didn't do it in the opera, which is some years later, and the voice goes, and Mary Garden did it in the opera, but Georgette did, did it on the stage. And many other you know, famous performers did it, but it was written for her. She did it at the premiere in Paris, and then she did it in the sort of secret performance in London in French. But yes, she certainly did get to play it, and there are pictures of her in it, and yeah, I think she enjoyed it. Yeah, she played that part. Thank you. Oh, could you hear me? I mean, I was sort of talking to Nikos, but yeah, Mike picks it up. Okay, just checking. Okay, yes. Hello. Uh, I don't think the mic is on. Oh, there we go. Okay. Another question about Prince Ivali. <laughs> just trying to understand the character and his motivations. So he says to Vanna that the reason he didn't 
come before was because he saw that she was happy or thought that she was with her new husband. And, um, right. But then he does eventually come and put this proposal, which is presumably going to have an impact on her marriage, which he had said he also didn't want to do. So is this showing that he's conflicted, or is it just that they're all already in a desperate situation? So he says, well, let's go for it anyway now, since we're all kind of in, in terrible danger. Um, what, what's, motiv what's motivating him to on the one hand stay away and then on the other hand show up in this really dramatic way and, and put everybody in this position. Okay, so the question is, is there, is there a kind of contradiction between his not wanting to interfere with her marriage and his arranging this dramatic confrontation which is you know, not exactly a recipe for happiness in the marriage? Well, for one thing, it's, um, you know, there's this war on and that means that it's not quite the same thing as, you know, meeting for coffee and how about the rest of your life? You know, that's um, also when he arranges this, he does have the power, and the power doesn't simply mean that she's there alone with him, but he also has the power to talk to her, to explain if he wants to, to do nothing, to put a cushion beneath her and so on. So it, it kind of gives him options that it seems, as I said, semi, somewhat plausible that he might do this as a symbolic military action without it being something that he doesn't know. Um, he doesn't know much about her marriage. He thinks she might be happy. He also could just, if she seemed in fact to be happy, as opposed to the way she confesses, well, it's not passionate love, but I think that's, that's what I agree to and that's what I've got. I think that makes a difference. And the way that she tests him, you know, by, you know, why did, why, why did you wait so long? He wasn't prepared to, he wasn't actually prepared to explain that one. It's one of the, one of my favorite lines in Leonard Peikoff's lecture on this play, which I hope some of you have heard or that you will, is that um, Leonard Peikoff points out that in a conventional drama, when a woman is faced with this sort of uh, proposition, she might say, you know, how dare you? And instead, what Vana says is, I'm remember, he says, she says, what kept you? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Leonard, I mean, he sometimes very succinctly manages to say something brilliant, and I think that qualifies, what kept you? Um, which is something that Prince of Ali was not expecting. So I don't think he's got his explanation prepared of how one thing squares with another. But it's something like that, that if she's happy, he didn't want to get in the way of that. His idea wasn't to, well, and even at the end, the, you know, the two of them are not going back to Pisa in order to present um, Guido with the news. But instead, when Guido turns out to be the way he is, um, he won't believe the truth, so he has to be told a lie. He's going to kill Prince Zavali. Forget that. You know, he doesn't get to have any say in, around here anymore. I think that's what's, I think that the situation changes, and that's why the, the actions of the characters change. Mm -hmm. So basically, if I understand what you're saying correctly, it's that he saw this as an opportunity to probe the situation, to get right. more information, and because it's such a tremendous value to him, she is that it was worth it to, to take the risk. And also, he really, he did love that child, you know, and um, I guess he could have written a letter or an email 
probably wouldn't fit in the text, but uh, you know, he, he, he said he wanted her to know. And I think that that is a genuine motivation that sometimes, you know, in life you seek out someone you knew years ago and you want to explain what you didn't explain at the time. So I think that's, that's part of his motivation too, is to, to honor the past because he never said goodbye. You know, and, and she didn't, she looked for him, you know, where, where, where was he? And, and now, you know, he'll explain where he was and he'll see what she's like, but he doesn't have the idea of this is the first day of the next part of our lives. I don't think that that's his plan. Thank you. Sure, thank you. So um, I was actually pretty surprised about the amount of controversy raised about the naked underneath her garment. Um, and it got me wondering, uh, was there anything else particularly controversial about this play when it was released um, that we might not be aware of because of just the context of our time? Um, well, I think that the deal, you know, that it wasn't just that she was naked, but that it was going to be a deal and that she accepted it. And of course, at the end, you know, off she goes with Prince of Aldi and I don't, well, how do I put this? Georgette and Maurice couldn't get married to each other because she couldn't get divorced. I'm just saying, and I, I don't know exactly how divorce would have run in this time, but I, I somehow don't see Guido as being super cooperative. Just saying, you know, and so, but that's not, they're not worried about that. You know, she's out of here, and she's out of here with Prince of Ali. He's going to walk free. He's a mercenary. Um, I guess he's going to have to find someone else to fight for or do something else. But the important thing is that they're together and that Guido is a bad memory. He's... You know, he's the bad dream that's over, and the new dream starts. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, the notion of someone just, you know, being out of here because of what I want, there's something shocking about that, even now, you know, that uh, my life matters. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right, thank you. Sure. I've got a question about uh, Mona Vanna's um, figuring out whether or not Valli does actually love her and I was really surprised to see that what she said was the best proof of his love and at the end of act two where he agrees to go to Pisa with her and and finally he relents all right I'll go and she says you could give me no better proof of your love yeah. so why is that the best proof of her, his, her love, or his love for her? Okay, well, that's an interesting question. Of course, uh, he won her love for him when he told her the truth, and now what he's doing is he's basically saying, uh, you know, you're a grown-up, you're a first-class passenger entitled to privileges, and if, if just because this wasn't my idea doesn't mean that it's not a good idea, let's do it. You know, it's... Um, it, it's a good recipe for a certain kind of partnership because he was the one who had all the power at the beginning of the act. And now she's come up with this good idea. And of course, you know, he could say, are you, you sure Guido's going to go for this? Do you think this is a good idea? Now, of course, beggars can't be choosers. They don't have a lot of options. But he thinks that she knows and that this is worth a try and, and that they're going to be together. You know, that they're, they're going to be together, and if things don't go exactly according to plan, they can figure it out. They can make a plan. Okay. Now, how am I on time? Someone was going to tell me. You are doing well. 
I'm doing well. Okay, how much you longer? You have do about um, six more minutes. Six more minutes. Okay, very good. And I have an online question for you. What? There's an online question for you. One more question? Okay, because I, I do have a little more to say, but I'll take one more question. Yes. Hi again. So Betsy is asking, uh, what about Rachmaninoff's Mona Lisa? Are there any silent movie versions? Okay. All right. Well, there's, a, there's an opera, or part of an opera, a partial opera uh, by uh, Rachmaninoff called um, Monavana, and that's because, well, it was popular in Russia. He thought it would be good to do an opera, and then he found out about that other one, you know, the, the, the only 58 version, and I think there was an issue with getting the rights. You couldn't do both, and so that's why there's only an incomplete Rachmaninoff Monavana, and I've listened to both of them, and I you know, they're, they're, they're good. I have not seen them performed, so I'm, I'm not sure. I think I've got, I think that the Rachmaninoff version doesn't get to act two. And as far as I'm concerned, the play just gets better and better as it goes along, and I love act three best. So I think that he would have done a great job if we'd gotten all the way to act three. But uh, that's, that, that's what I would say on that. But you can buy them. You know, you can get the CDs and see what you think. Okay. Thank so you, Susanna. Sure. I've got a couple minutes, so I'm going to give you my, my extra bit. Okay. I, I wanted to comment to you that this is a play that's both very clear in certain ways, and yet it's also frequently misunderstood, and not only by those who object to it as being obscene. It has been called a tribute to the self-denying sacrifice of Giovanna, who puts aside her own happiness for the sake of her city. And here's a statement from 1914, the year of the first licensed London performance, and published in a book called The Social Significance of the Modern Drama. And I'm going to quote. In Monavana, Maurice Maeterlinck gives a wonderful picture of the new woman, not the new woman as portrayed in the newspapers, but the new woman as a reborn, regenerated spirit who has emancipated herself from her narrow outlook upon life and detached herself from the confines of the home. The woman, in short, has become race conscious and therefore understands that she is a unit in the great ocean of life and must take her place as an independent factor to rebuild and remold life. Part of the reconstruction of society. Okay, so did you hear that? Detached from the confines of the home, a unit in the great oceans of life, a factor in the reconstruction of society. So who wrote this? It was a socialist. It's an anarchist. It's Emma Goldman. Okay, so that's what Emma Goldman said about Monavana. Okay, so uh, that description of Monavana reminds me not of Singleton from Love Letters by Ayn Rand, doesn't remind me of the Fountainhead, but it reminds me of a character in We the Living, a character who understands and celebrates what she sees as the new woman who speaks of the emancipation of women from dishes, diapers, and drudgery, who serves the greater cause of the proletarian state. Okay, so that's Monavana as a Comrade Sonia, right? That's the Comrade Sonia version. Well, it's as if when you read that description, you're imagining, you know, not our Monavana, but this Emma Goldman imagined play, because sometimes people have their own ideas of how plays ought to be, all right? Okay, so that's the Comrade Vana version of the play. But we, who were here last night, and we who can read the play, get to see the real thing, and to see and understand Maurice Maeterlinck's Monavana, 
in all its and her glory. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.